Hi, I'm Talia Badoncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Bruce Robertson to speak about carbon capture. But first, if you enjoy this content, please go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button, as well as the subscribe button. I'll be back in a bit. Joining me now is Bruce Robertson. He is an energy analyst at the IEEFA and is joining me now today to speak about carbon capture. Thanks so much for joining me, Bruce. Thank you very much, Talia. Why don't we start talking about uh, the history of carbon capture technology and how it first developed? Well, the fascinating thing about carbon capture and storage is it originally started in the 1970s. And back in the 1970s, you know, climate change really wasn't much of an issue apart from with some scientists you know as far as a social issue goes it really wasn't till the 2000s that we saw uh, climate change become a major issue and it started originally as a production technique for getting more oil out of depleted oil and gas wells in other words oil and gas wells that had reached the end of their life what they did is they pumped carbon dioxide underground and they force more oil and gas out at the other end and was collected by a well. So it was a method of, it was called enhanced oil recovery in those days. And then in a neat trick of rebranding, uh, the oil and gas industry uh, named it the more climate friendly sort of moniker, carbon capture and storage. So um, it, originally it was just an oil and gas production technique. Okay. So speaking about how they were rebranding it, could we potentially say that it's become a form of greenwashing and specifically uh, referring to one of the reports you uh, co-authored recently in September called Carbon Ca Capture Crux, where you speak about how approximately 73% of carbon capture storage capacity actually goes towards enhanced oil recovery. Yeah, it, 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 it is still um, mainly a, a, a method of producing more emissions. Um, I think that's really the key, the key point. I mean, you know, if, if, if you use it to produce more oil and gas, that oil and gas ends up getting burnt and producing more emissions. So, so the primary use of carbon capture and storage as it stands today is uh, an emissions production technique, effectively. But um, if we look at where the industry is going, it is actually looking more at pure carbon capture and storage, where it doesn't use it for enhanced oil recovery. And it is looking to try and decarbonize um, what they term the difficult to decarbonize industry, such as steel and cement. Um, steel probably is less of a difficult um, industry to decarbonize now because um, you know the Swedes are being pretty successful with their hydrogen-based steel making technique called the hybrid technique yeah but um, cement still is is a difficult industry to de decarbonize and obviously it's a very large global industry and how expensive is it to actually do this carbon capture storage and sequestration, I guess that would depend on the different techniques that are used and what exactly is being processed and stored. Yeah, look, look, in, in gas, in gas, um, 
if we have a look at the different types of carbon capture and storage, it, it really is not just one industry, unfortunately. It's not quite that simple. Um, if we have a look at the different types, the most common types that, that, that are used today um, are on gas plants, gas processing plants. When gas is produced, um, you know, you can't have too much carbon dioxide in, in the methane stream. Methane is what you actually burn in your gas cooker or whatever. It's actually methane, what they term gas, right? So um, they need to get the carbon dioxide out of that because if there's too much carbon dioxide in with the methane, it doesn't burn very easily. And that creates problems you know, for, for users of, of the product. So they remove the carbon dioxide. That form of removal is very common. It's been around a long time because they have to do it to make the product and sell gas. Uh, if we look at removing carbon dioxide um, from power plants, which is what a lot of people you know, assume carbon capture and storage is all about, that's far more difficult. And, and it's far more difficult because the stream of carbon dioxide is more dilute, right? And, and so it's more expensive. And what it does is it makes the power that's produced at the back end of the plant very, very expensive. And apart from that, it really hasn't been very successful at actually doing what it's meant to do. You know, we studied 13 flagship projects in this area in, 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 across the board. So across all these industries, the gas industry and the power production industry and others. And we found that only sort of you know, only three had performed roughly how they were meant to. Um, three had totally failed, um, pretty much. Um, and and seven had underperformed. And when they had underperformed, they hadn't underperformed by, you know, typically 10 or 20%. They had underperformed by typically 40 to 50%. So they really did not do what they were meant to do most of the majority of these projects that, that, that have been done in the past. Um, and there are lots of examples of that. Well, why were they underperforming? Is it because the technology still needs to be developed more or is it an issue of scale? Like, did it just need to be scaled up in order to be more effective? Well, no. Um, unfortunately, the answer is no to both of those because the industry is old. It, it's a 50 year over 50 year old industry now it's not it's not a new technology and that's at scale it's actually been done at scale since the 1970s and this is the key point is is that it, it's it's not like we've just started doing carbon capture and storage it's been going for half a century and at scale for half a century so if if we look if we look at um some of the big projects, for example, the, the, the reasons are always different why these projects don't succeed. And that's another complicating factor with this technology is, is that it's not a technology you can, it can be successful in one field and you take it up and put it in another and expect it to be successful. It doesn't work that way. Each time you build one of these plants, it's a unique engineering feet 
And that's one of the key reasons why it's been unsuccessful, is, is that it, 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 it's not something you can just replicate easily. And the best example of this is, 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 is the largest pure storage, um, carbon capture and storage project. In other words, they don't use the carbon dioxide to produce oil. And that's actually at a LNG plant in Northwest Western Australia called the Gorgon plant. Now this plant is owned by Chevron and it's got the major partners in it are Exxon and Shell. So, you know, arguably you've got access to some of the best engine, you know, petroleum engineers you know, on the planet. Um, you know, they're three major oil companies. Um, and it was produced, it was um, started about five or six years ago. And look, it, it, it's just never, never been able to do what it said it can do. Um, and it's, it's still having problems today. Um, and the reason for that is, is that where they're putting it into is different to other places. And they've had trouble with the sand clogging sensors and they've had trouble with um, corrosion in pipes. And they've had all these different problems um, that, that are unique to that particular site. And it means that it's not been a successful project despite over three billion US dollars being spent on it. So we're not talking about a cheap plant here. It's a lot of money, a lot of engineering expertise, and it's failed. And and this is not uncommon in carbon capture and storage. Well, it sounds like it really is a decarbonization pipe dream if it's not as effective as a lot of industry actors and people invested in it would hope it to be. And I think the International Energy Agency, a report that you mentioned in your report, um, stated that we would need something like 1.6 billion tons of carbon capture storage by 2030 in order to reach uh, net zero emissions by 2050. I mean, what does that even mean? How big are those numbers and how far away are we from reaching that? Uh, well, we're a very, very long way away from reaching it. Look, I don't want to sit here and pretend to you that the decarbonisation and the climate challenge is easy. It, it's, it's not an easy challenge. And the IEA is looking at this and saying, and other governments are, such as the US government, in particular with their Inflation Reduction Act, and the UK government and Europe, they're all looking towards carbon capture and storage as the solution for a large part of the emissions reductions that they're looking at. And at the moment, that looks to be a very problematic solution in, 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 in our opinion. You know, we, we, we entered this study with a reasonably open mind as to what was going to come out the back end of it, right? So all we were doing is we were actually looking at these projects and we weren't actually saying that they should capture so much carbon dioxide. We were looking at what the proponents the actual proponents of the project were saying that they were going to do at the beginning of the project, right? So if they said we're going to, only going to capture 50% of the flue gas coming off, we use that. We didn't say, oh, we want them to capture 90% or 100% or whatever, right? We just used what 
the proponents said their plant was going to do at the beginning of the process, right? And said, all right, how did how do they perform against that, against their actual metrics? And, and I think that's really a key point in the way we went about this study. It is actually using the proponents framework and and they fell very far short of what would be reasonable. And I think that that's the key point here is, is that, um, you know, we're not putting our framework on it. it. It's what these companies thought they could do. And so that is why we think it's such a problematic technology. And you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. I think we all remember the crazy roller coaster ride Joe Manchin took us on leading up to the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it was, it was a mess, um, but it was passed and there are a lot of climate provisions in it and it puts a huge emphasis on carbon capture storage. Given the doubts that you've expressed with, with regards to this technology, why do you think the IRA not the, the Irish IRA for the Inflation Reduction Act, places such a huge emphasis on this technology. It is the most curiously named act, isn't it? The IRA Act. When I know. Yeah, have this terrorist organisation. I mean, is so it supposed famous. to set off carbon bombs? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the whole inflation reduction thing, I don't really understand why it's even called that, but I won't, we, won't go, we won't go into the finer things of um, the naming of that act. But if we look, if we look at... Um, at, at why they turn to it. Essentially, it's the same reason that, that, that governments all around the world are looking at this. There, there are two things. One, they're struggling to work out how to get to net zero without it. That's the first point. And the second point is, is we should never forget the lobbying power of the oil and gas industry globally and their power globally to try and entrench themselves in the energy system for longer. Um, they see carbon capture and storage as a method of, of doing this, of entrenching their products, which are oil and gas, in the energy system for longer. Because every time they build one of these, they say, this is a solution and this is what, you know, this is the way forward. But we've had that, we've gone through that phase. We've seen what's happened with Gorgon's plant in Western Australia. We've seen what's happened with Shoot Creek in, 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 in the USA, in Wyoming, since the 1980s, and its performance, or lack thereof, in terms of a climate solution. Now, Shoot Creek's been a successful project from the point of view of the company because it's made money and it has used carbon dioxide byproduct successfully to produce more oil and gas but as a climate solution it's simply failed and i think that this is the key differential is is, is what are you aiming to do with carbon capture and storage are you actually aiming to solve the climate problem or are you aiming to keep oil and gas in the energy system for longer and 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 really, when you look at it, it's 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 pretty much the industry trying to keep oil and gas in the in the system for longer. 
there are some exceptions to this and the exceptions to this are industries like cement where so far we haven't really got a solution for dealing with the emissions from the cement industry and cement something that is very widely used as everyone knows all around the world um, in concrete and and building and highways and all sorts of other infrastructure and at the moment decarbonizing cement is immensely difficult and that's why um, some people are turning to carbon capture and storage for these types of industrial emissions, hoping that they can get these projects to work. And that's a pretty big leap of faith at the moment, given the history and history of failure in the industry. Do you think climate disclosure would be another way to tackle some of these issues? Um, I don't know if you've been following um, the U.S. SEC, the Security Exchange Commission's proposal on climate disclosure. Basically, the proposal was to make uh, companies disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. And it was met by a lot of consternation from big companies such as BlackRock, the one of the leading asset manager um, firms in the world. And they were obviously not very happy with this proposal because then they would have to disclose uh, the financial risk and scope three emissions, which are basically downstream emissions. Um, how important is this type of disclosure? It's incredibly important, especially the scope three. And, and, and like just to sort of um, go through a very quick basic um, explainer about what scope one, two, and three are. Scope three, uh, look, if you look at oil and gas, for example, scope one or two emissions are when you produce the oil and gas, and scope three is when you burn the oil and gas. Now, the big problem we have at the moment is this greenwashing of, of gas and, and LNG. There are terms used like carbon neutral LNG, and it's companies trying to basically take only the production emissions, the scope one and two emissions, and say, well, when we're offsetting all those emissions, right, either by buying carbon credits on the international carbon credit year, uh, market or maybe electrifying part of their process instead of burning gas. Um, now, the problem with that is, is, is that about 80, you know, approximately, and it depends on the product, approximately 85% of the emissions occur when you actually burn the product. So they're scope three emissions. So these guys are saying we're producing carbon neutral LNG, but that's only for the 15%, even if that claim is correct. And there's a lot of controversy over carbon credit units, as I'm sure you're aware, but that's a whole nother podcast topic. It's not really for today, but but they, but they but, 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 but the efficacy of those units is, has been called into question. Um, but even if they were good and were genuine offsets and, and, and even if the companies did electrify processes and managed to produce, you know, in that production stage, LNG um, that, that wasn't, um, you know, was carbon neutral, the, the pro big problem is when you actually burn the product. That's when most of the emissions occur. And the burning of the product can't occur without the production of the product. 
And this is this is the whole disconnecting carbon accounting. Um, you know, carbon. You know, global warming is a global problem, and and often people that don't like the idea of reducing emissions um, use that phrase, but it's very true. And if you produce a product, you've got to know that at the end of the process, it's going to get burnt and create emissions because. Let's face it, we're never going to capture the carbon that comes off the back of your car, for example, or your gas stove in your house. Um, so, um, you know, we have to take what's called product stewardship. And that's what the SEC was actually looking at, was saying, well, what are your scope one, two and three emissions? And, 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 and what are the emissions of when they burn your product? Um, much like the tobacco industry, for example, could claim that no harm was, was made in the production of their cigarettes. Well, it's quite frankly a bit irrelevant because the damage occurs when you smoke the cigarette. Um, and so th th this really is the, the problem with carbon accounting at the moment is, is it's all done on national view, uh, on national carbon accounts. Um, and for example, where I come from, which is probably one of the worst offenders of this, so I'm allowed to talk about it. Um, uh, you know, we don't we don't take the scope three emissions of all the LNG that we produce um, into account, and and so we produce this and go, oh, you know, we've got a net zero target for 2050, and we're still opening up new oil and gas fields all over the shop and new coal mines and everything else, and claiming that we're going to meet net zero by 2050. Well, it's it's quite frankly dishonest because we know that if we open up new oil and gas fields we can't reach net zero by 2050. It's a really basic thing. We just can't reach net zero by 2050 if we open up new oil and gas fields and it's all to do with this carbon accounting and this carbon accounting is quite frankly quite misleading. Yeah. Well, let's pivot to where you're from, to your corner of the world, Australia, and speak about some of the really exorbitant gas prices there, because Australia is one of the largest LNG exporters, um, and the industry is highly subsidized. So why are gas prices so damn high in Australia? Well, the funny thing is they are and they aren't, Talia. This is the amazing thing because the country is actually divided in two. We have a state-based system much like the US and um, Western Australia, prices are very cheap and there's no problem in the energy system at all in terms of electricity or gas prices. In Eastern Australia, it's totally the reverse. We have very high gas prices at times since 2014, um, gas prices have been above international prices. And this came about prior to 2014, the East Coast really didn't produce um, you know, that much gas. It only supplied the domestic market. And then in 2014, we discovered large coal seam gas fields, um, which is getting gas out of coal seams um, using fracking. Uh, and um, in Queensland, and they built three big export terminals. And now the East Coast market is 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 over seventy percent exports, and only you know a small amount of gas is used domestically. 
Um, what happened was, was that the three consortia that built those plants took over a lot of smaller companies. They signed all these contracts with the smaller companies that are, have exclusivity provisions in them, that they could only supply the export plants. And effectively now these three control, you know, consortia control 90%, 90% of all the known reserves on the east coast of Australia. And what they do is they manipulate the price. Um, they've formed a cartel, a gas cartel, and they manipulate the price and, and keep it extraordinarily high. Um, and there's a lesson here, actually, in, um, in, 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 going, in, in going so heavily into exports um, for, for the U.S. And, and, and this is what's, what's really interesting, because it's the, 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 um, the model to make gas prices high um, is Australia for the oil and gas industry. And, and the U.S. is actually following that model. And is that because uh, the U.S. presumably also has a very low tax burden on the industry as well as a monopoly or oligopoly? No, in, in the U.S. it's slightly different because you do actually have a market for gas. We don't have a market for gas in Australia because you've just got these three people controlling the price. Um, uh, in the U.S. you do have a market for gas, but, but, but how the U.S. is following what Australia did is it, it, it is overbuilding LNG plants. And, and what that will cause, look, if there was a small or medium-sized LNG industry in the U.S., it, it, it wouldn't be a problem. But they are continuing to build a lot of plants. And what that's going to do over time is force up. Uh, gas prices in the U.S. to to more to international levels, more to the levels of of gas prices you see in Europe and and Asia, which are exorbitantly high. And I think that that's the key point. The key point is that that, that um, you have uh, you have this ability to reprice your domestic gas to the international market, and that's what the U.S. That's the big prize for the US oil and gas companies is not the expensive export markets, but it's making those expensive prices go into the domestic market. And one thing I've always wondered, why is gas labeled a transition form of energy? I mean, that, that word is somewhat confusing to me because it's still emitting tons of greenhouse gas emissions, and yet it's considered to be a kind of clean form of energy. Well, put simply, gas is just another fossil fuel. Um, you know, when 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 we when we look at global emissions, twenty five percent of all emissions are, are methane, which is natural gas, right? So twenty five percent of all emissions are, are methane, are greenhouse gas emissions. Methane emissions are growing so fast. In, in the COVID recession affected year of, of, of 2020, they grew at the fastest rate in history. In 2021, after COVID ended, they grew faster. So uh, in 2022, they, they grew faster again. So we've got this accelerating trend, accelerating trend in, in methane emissions. And that's because, um, uh, basically uh, the expansion of the oil and gas industry, particularly the gas industry in, in the US, um, in Qatar, 
Australia, uh, in, in all these nations, you know, you've seen, seen and are still seeing very large expansion projects get put in. As I said before, you know, we all know that if there are any new oil and gas fields um, opened up, we, we can't meet our net zero commitments. And we all know that gas fields around the globe are being opened up at a very rapid rate. And so that's why you're seeing the continued rise in greenhouse gases. It's driven by the gas industry. It's driven by the gas industry. There's been this pivot from the oil and gas industry from and, and the, you know, the fossil fuel industry, basically from oil and coal into gas. And that's driving climate change at the moment. Well, I wanted to speak about Europe very briefly. I mean, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there were really high energy prices in Europe. And recently, a lot of European politicians have been saying that they've managed to avert an energy crisis and that I, I guess they were expecting prices to be even higher this winter. But because temperatures haven't been all that cold, they, you know, they maybe um, were able to avert this this crisis. So what does that mean? Have they been able to diversify or just find um, other countries to give them more gas or what's going on? Um, look, uh, you know, the, Europe's essentially, well, Russia has essentially precipitated a global gas crisis. Um, uh, you know, if we, if we look, what happened was, was, that, you know, Putin turned off the taps, literally, at a big big pipelines that went to Europe that supplied them with their winter fuel were basically turned off. Um, and obviously this was, you know, a disaster for Europe because they relied on Russian gas for a large part of their energy system. Um, the crisis has been averted for now um, in, in Europe, uh, principally because of the weather. <laughs> <laughs> very warm winter for no other reason. If you'd had a very cold winter, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be saying this. I'm sure it would be a lot more marginal. Um, you know, um, Europe did build a lot of gas storages. It imported as much LNG as it could get its hands on. But most LNG is sold on long term contracts. Okay, so there isn't a lot of spare LNG out there in the globe. So when this happened in Europe, they soaked up all the spares, the short-term cargoes of LNG they possibly could. And all the LNG plants all around the globe ran as fast as they possibly could because there was this massive profit-making opportunity for them. And so, and so you saw, saw the combination of those two things occur. What did that actually do to gas? It made it prohibitively expensive in other countries. Countries like um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, in India, they simply couldn't afford the fuel, right? They had relied on the short-term market because historically the short-term market was cheaper than long-term contracts. They had relied on that for their power systems. And what it meant was that it became so expensive they couldn't afford to buy it because they knew if they sent out the electricity bills that would would you know run off that high cost gas and that high cost LNG, people wouldn't pay them. So 
literally you had rolling blackouts in countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh caused by the LNG crisis that was precipitated by Russia turning off the taps to gas to Europe. So that 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 had this amazing effect on on these countries. So what high LNG prices have done is they've actually lowered demand in in what were expected to be growing markets for the LNG industry in the medium to longer term. They've killed those markets um, with high prices. But has that affected um, like their margins and their profits? Because if they've essentially lower demand, people aren't consuming as much of that gas. Does Will that inevitably mean that these companies will then lower their prices over the long term or do you not see it working out that way? In the short term, Europe is soaking up all, you know, soaking up all the gas it possibly can because the amount of gas it was buying out of Russia was very large, right? And so in the short term, LNG prices are still strong. Um, you know, they're coming off a bit now because the gas storages in Europe are still quite full and, you know, because it's a warm winter. But it's only a seasonal thing. You know, it's only a short-term seasonal thing. In the medium term, what you're seeing in Europe is the rapid electrification of a lot of houses that previously relied on gas. They're turning to heat pumps and they're manufacturing a lot of heat pumps right now and installing an awful lot of heat pumps so they're electrifying their systems, um, which means long-term demand destruction for gas. Because once you put in an electric boiler in your house to, 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 to heat your home, you don't buy gas again. It's, it's a long-term demand destruction. So high gas prices are causing demand destruction globally. Um, in Europe, um, high gas prices and the lack of, you know, the fear of lack of, mainly the fear of lack of availability rather than the actual lack of availability have, have, have meant that there's been long-term demand destruction by people turning to, to electrify their homes. Um, in, in, in Asia, in developing Asia, it's just too expensive. So they're turning to alternative forms of fuel, whatever they can, um, just not gas. Um, coal is very, very expensive as well on the global traded market. So that's, you know, also facing similar issues to gas long term. Um, so, so, you know, you are seeing a boom in renewables globally on the back of this. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of perverse how such a great event for the LNG industry is, is turning into one that long term will lower their demand. So how important is it that big industrial powers like the US or supranational entities like the EU work with China to meet these climate goals, despite some of the differences that they have um, geopolitically? Oh, look, global warming is a global problem, as I always say, and we have to work together. Now, the classic example is the treatment of China. Um, you know, a lot of people see China as a global pariah in the climate Thing for their whatever reason. Uh, but we have to look at why emissions from China have risen. And they've risen because the Western world, Europe, US, Australia, we've all basically deindustrialized a lot of our economies and sent that manufacturing to China. We've exported our emissions essentially to China. So 
we can't complain about Chinese emissions rising when, you know, our phones, our computers, many products are now made in China that weren't before. Um, so, you know, we have to work together to solve this emissions problem. Um, we did it before with, with, with CFCs, you know, we worked globally and there were big issues between Russia and the US at the time, but we managed to do that and solve that problem. Working globally has been done before to solve global environmental issues that are, are threatening us and we can do it again and we must do it again. And we must realize as a starting point that we have exported a lot of our, the Western world has exported a lot of its emissions to China and to developing Asia. Well, thank you, Bruce, for joining us for this really enlightening discussion on decarbonization. Thank you very much, Talia. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you're in a position to donate, please do go to our website, theanalysis.news, hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you.